Hello, everybody. My name is Brandon Burns, Chief Executive Officer for Peaks Recovery Centers. Very excited to be joining you all today for a new year and a new Finding Peaks episode from yours truly, your favorite, Brandon Burns, the host with the mostest. Joined today by Chief Clinical Officer Jason Friesma, LPCLAC, all the clinical things at Peaks Recovery as you know him. And uh, as you all kind of know, a quick background before we introduce our special guest today, um, uh, the Natural Medicine Health Act uh, passed here in the state of Colorado, and that means by 2025, uh, the state of Colorado and uh, namely its healthcare providers will be able to, to deliver plant-based medicine interventions, namely psilocybin uh, plant-based interventions at this time. And so we're gonna continue to be curious over the next few years about these underground movements, these above ground movements that are taking place in the world and the delivery of care and what that might mean for the state of Colorado and individuals within treatment for both substance use disorder and mental health. And so we're joined today by Tom Fiegel, Chief Executive Officer and founder of Beyond. That's B-E-O-N-D dot U-S if you're gonna find it on the good World Wide Web. But Tom, thank you so much for being here and welcome to the show today. Thank you so much for the invitation. It's great to meet you. It's great to be together virtually. Um, I'm coming to you from Cancun, Mexico, where we're based, uh, but uh, wonderful to meet you. Thank you for the invitation. Absolutely. Uh, looking forward to diving in this episode with you. Certainly have had the pleasure of uh, speaking with some of your team members already and getting to know your guys' company, but let's get it out there in the open and talk about the successes and so forth. And I think what's you know special about this journey that you guys are on and what you're doing to facilitate care and to you know offer uh, meaningful services to individuals who are suffering in the world is that you have your own recovery journey story uh, intact as well too prior to arriving at this and just curious for the viewers out there what you know uh, what that recovery journey looked like meant for you and then kind of how it kind of led into this um, you know new phase of life that you're going through. Yeah, sure. Thank you. So I, um, uh, you know, I come from a, you know, a family, a long, long history of alcoholism. And, um, and as far as I know, I'm the only person uh, that that found my way uh, into recovery. I mean, I'm sure some others that I don't know of may have experimented with their efforts. But for for me, you know, I lost my dad um, and had my first son in the same year, almost a one month period. And I was at that point, um, you know, a new parent. And I was really the, you know, the active addiction, the wheels of the active addiction just came off. There was no more kind of, um, uh, separate identities where I was drinking or using and then could, you know, pull it together and get to work. Um, it was, it was all on. And that, uh, for me, uh, almost 20 years ago, um, was the defining event that really forced me to acknowledge and accept a few things. First of all, I couldn't live that way anymore. Second of all, I didn't want to replicate the experience that I had as a child with my my who you know my first child, um, and uh, I was dying. I was dying inside. I was dying outside, and I had to find something uh, better. 
Um, you know, I nowadays we might think of it as the old-fashioned way. You know, I um, uh, was strongly encouraged by my spouse to uh, get help, um, and I had the benefit of therapists. I had the benefit of specialists in addiction. The benefit of treatment experts. I, had, you know, um, but at the time I didn't have recovery. I didn't, all I knew was I was in trouble. And um, I think for me, uh, what was different in my experience was I had always, I, I had always done well in school. You know, it was hard because I was oftentimes, um, uh, you know, not ready for school. Um, <laughs> But a structured program, I had never heard of the 12 steps, you know, or 12 step type program or anything like that, smart recovery, anything. And so when I was ready and I was introduced to it, I, I, I was sort of willing to just do what I was told to take suggestion. And what excited me most about it was I felt better fast. I missed a lot of you know, I thought I'd never have fun again. I thought I would all my friends, I'd have to get rid of all my friends. I did have to change my phone number, all the normal things. But what was clear to me was I, I immediately started to feel more alive. Um, and it didn't mean that life got better all of a sudden. It meant that I could deal with life better all of a sudden. And I had a lot of problems to solve, a lot of relationships to mend, amends to make, et cetera. But I felt better doing it. And that for me was very real, very palpable. And plus I had a new baby. So I, I felt yeah. very deeply connected to him very quickly. Wow. Um, but I did that the old fashioned way, you know, 12 step. Um, it's still the new fashioned way. It's still brilliant <laughs> and innovative for some, uh -huh. but, um, I didn't know about the relationship between, I knew about spiritual awakening. I knew about Carl Jung. I knew about the, you know, the hopeless, in my case, hopeless alcoholic. Um, but what I didn't know is that there were other technologies that might be available to people to help um, expand and accelerate the experience of, of a spiritual awakening. Um, and it wasn't until nine years into recovery that I even learned about anything related to psychedelics that weren't recreational. Mm -hmm. So Tom, can you, can you kind of describe what you felt like was maybe missing from your life? Uh, if during those nine years, during that transitionary period before maybe you found a different way to find a spiritual awakening? Absolutely. Um, so I was very active in a program, programs, uh, several of the 12 step programs. Um, and uh, I, I, what, what was missing for me was uh, I got very good at minimizing the downside of using and active using. So I knew I wasn't going to get <clears throat> in trouble or DUI or lose my job or, you know, embarrass people or wreck my life anymore. Um, and I felt like I was growing. I felt like everything was getting better fast. But what wasn't happening was um, 
the uh, a, a sense of self-love or a sense of healing that was continuous. My the in the uh, introduction to recovery was about stopping using and staying stopping using. And make no mistake, those are the two goals for sure. How do we get you to stop, and then how do we help you stay stay stopped? I know that we know that here at Beyond. But the question of why. Uh, at a deeper level, wasn't uh, as uh, satisfactory. The answer to the question why uh, I wanted to stay stopped and I wanted it to um, to be a renewable resource of uh, inspiration wasn't um, satisfying for me. And so I felt like I was getting more active i had sponsees i you know i was going to more meetings going to workshops going to conventions doing all those things i was clearly better but if you had asked me about healing the early childhood trauma that was uh sort of at the root probably of why i was self-medicating and anesthetizing i didn't know much about that at all and so it wasn't until uh, and, you know, uh, years into recovery that I began to do that work, that I got a sense of, oh, wait, I'm not just not using and drinking anymore. I'm actually working towards a healing of uh, both my uh, early childhood trauma, some of the trauma I had caused myself as an adult, but I also saw, began to see healing as synonymous with growth and growth as synonymous with living. And then it then I was like, oh, now this is infinitely renewable and uh, applicable. And it was something that I could much more effectively relate to and um, share and engage others in, in, in the process of no matter where they were in their recovery journey that the goal wasn't to stop or just stay stop. It was to feel that sense of purposeful, self-motivated healing. Yeah, I mean, that, oh, yeah, 100%. It, re it reminds me so much of like, you know, take, take away the drugs, like now what? You know, what happens next in the, the recovery process? Okay, now, I, now I'm left without these uh, historically reliable numbing resources for emotional, physical pain, or otherwise. Uh, but in this moment now, you know, what's the next thing? And for me, it, it, it's something that we constantly talk about on this show, but like an, an existential weight. What is the next motivator? What is the thing I'm going to carry out of here beyond this moment? And instead of it just being a brute force, I'm stopping into uh, I've stopped and I cannot wait for this next kind of next episode and um, part, part of my journey. And, uh, and it sounds like you kind of went through like a ladder of it, right? Starting with, you know, the rooms and the AA community, oh, and then into, you know, the therape therapeutic processes and those types of interventions. And then, you know, just kind of following the staircase to wellness, right? Wherever that path was taking you, you were convicted, looking, you know, at your, you know, little baby boy and being inspired in that way to show up in the best possible way. But with an internal desire at the same time, it sounds like to state, uh, I can't show up in this way if I don't get this part right. Right. That's kind of an accurate. Yes, it was. It was very much that I around nine years, I started to get very curious about what <laughs> what else was there? What more was there? 
um, uh, to the, the the underlying uh, sort of reason to to want to live that way. And it, and you know, I'd gone through lots of cycles. It, you know, it wasn't to get the heat off anymore. It wasn't just to like feel better or feel healthy, uh, because as a result of, as you put it, take away the drugs, what am I left with? I was left with pain. I was left with depression, anxiety, and, you know, PTSD sometimes, this sense of, like, uh, I remember uh, at one point I had these uh, episodes where I was just falling apart in the afternoon. I had a good job. I was working. And it wasn't until I went to a therapist and they said, hey, let's look at that. There's something else going on because I wasn't using um, and, um, so I got very curious and I, you know, again, I was using the tools, right? I was praying, I was meditating. I had an active spiritual practice, a conscious contact with what I considered to be, I use the term greater power, um, to keep it less hierarchical, but a greater power, a greater intelligence that was all real for me. Very real. But it, but I still felt uh, like I was having this. I had the psychological weight and wound and emotional dynamic that was not um, satisfactory. And the best that the pharmaceutical industry could offer me was a bunch of SSRIs uh, or sleeping medication, and that just didn't make sense to me. I, I tried it. I did it for as long as it would work. But frankly, you know, I had uh, very uh, unsatisfactory side effects, you know, sexual dysfunction, weight gain, you know, sleep dysfunction, et cetera. I was like, this, there's got to be better than this. And I got very curious about what else was there. And, and that's when sort of I kept all of those tools in place, but began to look for, you know, a... Uh, a spiritual awakening that could be in alignment with a consciousness expansion. Mm -hmm. So then I, I do kind of wonder, you know, as your story then progresses, I know um, there's sometimes in the rooms, uh, people in the rooms can maybe frown on alternative uh, medicine and that sort of thing as a way to seek recovery. How did, how did you kind of cross that threshold into uh, seeking uh, further help, I guess, with uh, perhaps exploring the psychedelics. I was that guy. Absolutely, 100% <laughs> against any uh, any drugs at all. Um, yeah. You know, and I was very much aligned with, you know, the sort of reading into uh, the help from outside professionals and interpreting that as if the prescription was. We all know that there's truth to that. We should take medication when it is effective. Mm -hmm. uh, at the same time, we also, I can't ignore uh, a certain amount of cynicism about the fact that many so-called qualified, uh, licensed, credentialed professionals overprescribe. You know, they're, they, they don't seem to be in the healing business. They seem to be in the, the, the business of writing scripts. Um, and so I had to balance that, like, it's okay for me to take something as long as I get it from a doctor, but I know I'm reading the newspaper, there's 
you know, drugs that are being overprescribed, they're being misrepresented in their level of addict, you know, uh, you know, the, the, how much they are going to cause people to be addictive. They say they're less addictive, they're in fact more addictive, et cetera. And I knew those people that were suffering. They went, they had back surgery, they, or they had an accident, they took the medicines as prescribed, and then they ended up being unable to get off. And the best that their doctor could do was a lifetime sentence of, you know, some maintenance drug. That that was not my story, but it raised for me some questions about like what level of um, engagement did I want to have my own investigation instead of just a binary interpretation of the big book or whatever. So so I I was that guy frowned upon any use of any like not even mouthwash, nothing. Um, yeah. And and that worked for me for a long time. I also started to hear stories about people who had had uh, experiences with certain types of plant medicines or certain uh, consciousness expansion experiences through breath work, through meditation. Uh, and I was very curious about that. I was like, wait, you can sort of get high through meditation? What did that mean? And, and the, all the research was seeming to suggest significant physiological uh, and, and mental wellness benefits from not using anything and just meditating. And I was, you know, I meditated already. So I began to get very active in meditation, very active. I was already active in service, very active in prayer. And it left me feeling like, well, maybe there's some more research to do. So I found all a lot of different authors that had written about ethnobotany and the use of certain plants for certain healing properties. We all know that that is, you know, that's where medicine comes from, you know, uh, and then it gets synthesized and we usually they create a synthetic version of something that is uh, originates through nature or through some organic material, penicillin, et cetera. So I, I started reading about that. And I, I remember actually it was uh, Terrence McKenna where the reading of Terrence McKenna's work really helped me come to believe that um, uh, the uh, non-Western uh, science of medicine was worthy of a lot of investigation. And I went to Peru and I uh, tried uh, ayahuasca for the first time in a very authentic indigenous manner, deep, deep in the jungle, with a third generation ayahuascaro, uh, you know, he didn't speak Spanish or English. I didn't speak, um, you know, um, Shipibos from the Shipibo tribe in Peru. We had literally nothing in common about a deep uh, curiosity about what would happen if I allowed you know these the the part of my mind that was willing to believe that maybe nature that predated humans might have something to offer me and i thought then 
that I was going to the jungle to hire the plants, in this case, ayahuasca, <laughs> to help me heal, to help me heal and expand my understanding of what had happened to me as a kid. Why was I feeling the way I was feeling? And what more might there be to the definition of my being than just the story of my trauma and my recovery or, you know, what else was there? And, um, and that, frankly, when I did that over the course of a month in Peru or thereabouts, I realized that there was actually a lot of compatibility. What I had been seeking with drugs and alcohol wasn't just anesthesia. It was expansion. And there was a part of that behavior and a part of that community, a part of that freedom, a part of that adventure that I wanted, but I was using the wrong medication at the wrong dose at the wrong frequency. Uh, and the alternative wasn't a uh, pharmaceutical. It was a very, very um, controlled and systematic investigation of certain psychedelic substances. Uh, certainly always with someone that had a deep reverence or training or technical knowledge of what it was for and why I was qualified to do it. Um, and so in the end, I came away from that experience not thinking that I had hired the plants to heal me, but actually that I was part of nature, that one of the biggest problems that I had was a sense of separation from self and a sense of separation from spirit, sense of separation from nature. And that, uh, in fact, I wanted to be more like the plants. Look at them. What do they do best? They grow. What am I trying to do? Grow. Look at them. They seem to be very satisfied with their imperfections. I, going in, felt very unsatisfied and very afraid to admit any imperfections. They seem to be using what they had uh, and making the most of it. I was worried about the future and what I didn't have oftentimes. Mm -hmm. They didn't seem to be comparing themselves, saying, if only I was a palm tree and not a rose, I would be happy. <laughs> and then finally, I was like, they're not, they're, you know, they're not uh, greedy. They don't seem to think like if I had all the sunlight and all the water, then I could be generous and happy. No, they were like, hey, we're all sharing in the same relationship with the source of our growth. What you're doing is fine for you. What's, what is working for, uh, for me is working for me. So I, my whole perspective on my willingness to experiment in a certain very structured context with so-called alternative healing modalities uh, significantly um, opened up. Make sense? Yeah, it does. Beautiful sense, and love the love the relationship and the the metaphor with nature. Um, so one of the big things we've been trying to do around the Natural Medicine Health Act, because we see plant-based medicines as an innovative tool for uh, recovery journeys, mental health journeys, or yeah, I mean, even just individuals who aren't suffering in the sense of like a medicalized diagnosis and things like that, but just. Uh, you know, on the path of recovery and then generating a new awareness for, you know, meaning and purpose in this world. I think there's so many advantages to plant-based medicines, but, you know, so we've been trying to open the hearts and minds uh, to the individuals out there is really just kind of the concept we've been running with, because uh, there's a lot of, you know, scariness around its stories, background, uh, you know, government interventions, all these types of things that have placed a lot of narratives in a lot of people's minds, uh, my mind included. 
uh, in that regard. And so we're kind of you know, peeling back the onion layer again uh, into a new direction of this. And uh, in, in pursuit of opening hearts and minds of individuals, you know, it's, uh, I think it's important to acknowledge that these plant-based medicines don't have the same sort of addictive potential in the research and in the experiences of its users. And so for somebody who you know, had those addictive experiences and had, has a great deal of awareness around that, you take this you know, plant-based medicine called ayahuasca, um, uh, just hopefully you can share more with us about why after that moment it wasn't like I need to be on this every day um, and how and how it shifted from an alcohol regimen of frequency right because that's kind of the anesthetic attitude towards but ayahuasca seems to be bringing something much more different than I got to be on this and anesthetized at all points right it's that's a great point and you're you're exactly right um, uh, so remember I'm already in this story i'm i'm already nine years into recovery when this happens right so i've been free uh so to speak but not feeling and still doing a lot of therapy still doing a lot of the things I, that were suggested but i didn't feel healed and it mm -hmm. and I actually came to feel like i never would that mm -hmm. that it would just be a little less bad forever and it didn't it, that meant like I was, I was running marathons, I was meditating, you know, I was, uh, you know, doing whatever, reading self-help books, I was doing whatever I could. So it wasn't like I was in, inactive and then went to the jungle to, you know, see what would happen. It was like, I was really seeking. And, um, and so the ayahuasca experience, just like other, you know, plant-based um, uh, psychedelic experience, including Ibogaine, which we use at Beyond, Beyond, it was not pleasant. I mean, this is not a recreational activity, mm -hmm. it, at the least of which it was hot, buggy uh, environment. This is this is super like rugged territory. And it's a unpleasant taste of this, this goopy, uh, um, uh, you know, like stuff that I drank. And then the experience itself causes, caused a lot of purging, uh, which means vomiting, which is colloquially known as getting well, um, you know, and the purging, uh, you know, there's various levels of interpretation, spiritual interpretation of what's going on. But for me, it was not something I was dying to like do again uh, right away. Now, it's, it is true that because of the um, sensory distortion and a sense of dreamlike experience that it could be, um, you know, an experience that somebody would, would, would seek kind of for those effects. But it's but it's very unpleasant. It's not relaxing. It's a long experience, and it's um, you know it, it's one that and leaves one feeling uh, with a lot of insight, a lot of clarity of mind, a lot of um, a sense of purpose. But getting there is a lot of work, and so uh, that's why you know I don't think people are you know as eager to, it's not fun. It's, this is not a rave drug. And, and likewise, Ibogaine, 
which is on the spectrum of plant medicines and psychedelic substances is even worse, meaning the experience is very intense um, and it needs to be administered in a medically safe way, but the effects are unique insofar as it immediately uh, reduces or eliminates any withdrawals, particularly from opioids, opiates, stimulants, or alcohol. And for a lot of people, we know that avoiding withdrawals is one of the reasons why they don't start to stop, that they, they want to, but they can't start to stop because the withdrawals are so painful. Ibogaine is unique among psychedelics that in, insofar as it seems to dramatically reduce you know, high double-digit percentages of post-acute withdrawal syndrome um, symptoms uh, immediately within the first dose. And when I heard about that, I got very, very curious as to why was that not available to people who wanted it or needed it? And then I started getting very interested in what would need to be true for people to have access to uh, you know, a, a, a plant, a natural substance, which when used ethically and medically safe would offer that benefit so that they could begin the therapy that had taken me nine years to get ready for. Like, why did, why did I have to wait nine years to really be ready to do the deeper work? And I just got uh, very interested in that question as I learned about through Terrence McKenna and the study of other uh, experts on these topics, how do they work and why do they work in the way that they work and what would happen, what would need to be true if more people had access to them? Um, finally, it was only then that I learned that people who didn't have any chemical dependency but had severe PTSD, I had both, were using Ibogaine. You know, these are stories of Marcus Capone and others who had come back from tours of duty in uh, combat and had done everything they were asked to do, benefited from all the training, and they couldn't find relief from severe symptoms of PTSD. But Ibogaine worked for them. And I was like, now this is, this is not something I can ignore anymore. These people don't, mm -hmm. they don't lie. Like yeah. they're, they're talking about something very important. And I met those people and I asked them about their experience long before I ever tried Ibogaine. So I guess it, it, you actually took the question I was going to ask, so I just have to move on to my next one. So I was wondering how you made the transition from ayahuasca to looking into the aboga plant and, and Ibogaine and that sort of thing. So, you know, the question that, that kind of rattles around in my head is this is so new. Um, and obviously you have to do this uh, from Cancun, Mexico, probably because of the scheduling of these uh, drugs, if you will, by the FDA causes them to have severe consequences for using them here um, in the US. But how, how do you ensure kind of the plant-based experience and the dosing of Ibogaine? Like how does it go from Iboga to Ibogaine uh, in your setting? Yeah, it's a great, great question. So for me, the curiosity became kind of more of a mission. When I 
um, I, I, I met people in recovery who had said like, oh, this is how they got off opiates. This is how they got off opioids. This is how they got off alcohol. And they, you know, as we mentioned before, they weren't talking about it openly in program, but they, they admitted that in sort of the, you know, the more vulnerable uh, private conversations. And um, I, I wanted to understand like how it worked and and if it was true that's that I was just curious about that is it true uh, and there's lots of clinical studies or observational studies of psychedelics that suggest a lot of very strong evidence that that the stories that were I was being exposed to were true um, what happened for me is you know, someone in my family actually later actually had an opiate uh, addiction, not in my uh, immediate family of origin, but in my family. And they did Ibogaine. They went to Mexico. They struggled. First of all, they struggled. They went to rehabs. They got out of rehabs. And somewhere down the line, they would have a craving. They weren't in withdrawals. They'd have a craving something wasn't right they would use and then it would all be right back where it was and went to several rehabs had a similar experience and it wasn't until a friend of theirs said they had gone to mexico and used ibogaine uh and that the withdrawals and the cravings were gone and that they had stayed gone for an extended period of time and when i when i heard that story uh, from someone in my own family, I was like, okay, now I really need to understand this. And um, uh, so I still had a career. It wasn't involved in psychedelics, had nothing to do with recovery, business strategy. I was an entrepreneur. And um, uh, I heard about their experience and I heard the medicine worked, but the environment was terrible. And it wasn't it wasn't because it was intended to be terrible. It was because for all kind of the best reasons, someone had been an addict, they had done Ibogaine or been provided Ibogaine, it had worked and they decided to try to share it with the world. They had a little place and people could go there and do it. And that's where the person from my family went. Again, no medical infrastructure, no psychology, no nutrition, you know, no, um, uh, addiction medicine expertise at all and the substance still worked right and and so i made a promise to them that if i ever could start the place they should have gone i would mm-hmm. and it and so i had that idea and about four or five years ago i started to see that there there was regulatory sort of ease or relaxation in certain air jurisdictions around first medical marijuana, and then certain decrim movements, uh, decriminalization movements around certain psychedelics. And then all of a sudden there was like an industry emerging around mental wellness using so-called off-label substances like ketamine in the context of the therapist. I've never done that myself, by the way, but I was like, wait a second. I think what I've been thinking about is now becoming a thing and um and so i 
I, I really wanted to understand why could it not be delivered at scale safely by medical professionals? Um, and you mentioned the most important run one in the US, Ibogaine and other plant substances are at the same level of schedule or illegality uh, by the DEA as cannabis. Cannabis is federally a schedule one substance uh, just like Ibogaine. And, uh, and, you know, we can argue about why that is and when that might change or what it would take to change. But I realized that in nearly three dozen states, it was being sold recreationally, but yet it's a schedule one substance. Now I was very confused why this other substance, which could actually save people's lives, uh, was not legal. I let, leave that to the advocates and lawyers and the politicians, hopefully the right ones, um, not just in Colorado, but other places. And I decided that I would want to legally, medically, uh, ethically, scientifically uh, create an environment where my family members should have gone. And that meant it had to be in Mexico. Uh, that's the closest place to where I'm from, the United States, where uh, it could be done. And it is unregulated in Mexico, so it's not illegal. It's been done for decades. It's been done for you know uh, many hundreds, if not thousands of years ceremonially, uh, but not in the way that it's being used here at Beyond. And so the, the need to do it in Mexico is simply because I don't wanna do anything illegal that you know, I stopped doing that a long time ago. Um, and uh, I wanted to make sure that everything we did was transparent, that we could tell 100% of the truth about the pricing, the results, uh, the people involved, et cetera. And that was the thing that was missing. You could find Ibogaine on the internet, but nobody seemed to be willing to put it into the light, you know, to just be 100% open about it. And that, to me, was suppressing the potential rate of adoption, the use, and frankly, the benefits. Because anytime I was, I've ever done anything where I was rooted in fear of being caught, it wasn't a good thing. And so I, when, when I decided to investigate uh, the creation of Beyond, that was a, an absolute must, that it would have to be legal, transparent, and out in the open. And I hired a lawyer who's a career Department of Justice, former DEA prosecutor to help us figure out what is the way to do it where it would be legal, 100% legal. And of course, that meant we couldn't do it in the United States. We would never buy, possess, sell, store, manufacture any schedule and substance in the jurisdiction where it was illegal. Um, so here we are in Mexico. Uh, we have licensed credentialed doctors that are trained in the United States, licensed credentialed uh, therapists that, are, that have addiction medicine expertise that are trained and uh, have practiced in the United States uh, that work here, uh, you know, nutritionists, uh, other adjunct therapists, nurses, ICU certified nurses, many of whom have training from the United States. It's not to suggest that training from the United States is better than training in Mexico, but it, it, it is to suggest 
that I'm not the only one that thinks this technology is important, that so important that it should be delivered and that they're willing to change their lives to enable it to be delivered effectively and safely to people who need it. Beautiful. Uh, I, I appreciate so much of the discussion and uh, how we've arrived at this juncture with it. Uh, and so it, it's kind of just nicely landed into your facility now. So uh, now that we've arrived at Beyond and we're in Cancun, Mexico, you know, the patient arrives on your doorstep uh, from the moment they, you know, uh, for you know knock on the door so to speak and uh what what how does that process start and then you know take us kind of for the, kind of through the full treatment episode and what their patient experience is like for the individual no problem we've spent a lot of time working out a delivery model and then having outside experts peer review it to try to make it as best as it can be i like to say we're not the best we're the best at getting better and we're continually trying to improve what we do. I know you guys are too. I'm super impressed with your own, um, you know, descriptions and transparency about your own work that you do uh, and admire that a lot. And I think it makes a lot of people much more comfortable uh, with being willing uh, to, to raise their hand and say, I I'm ready and can you help? Like that's, that's what it's all about. And so, uh, so nobody shows up here and knocks on the door. What happens is they start, we have uh, a five phase delivery model. Uh, we call it insight oriented Ibogaine uh, because the intention is to uh, identify actionable insights that will enable someone to heal uh, from the root cause of whether it's addiction, depression, anxiety, or symptoms of PTSD, or some combination thereof, heal from the root cause, and then have a plan of action after they uh, practice that while they're here. So the first phase is preparation, right? Really, phase zero is education. So we take a lot of time, and we take very seriously the uh, objective goal of just helping people understand what options they have. Is this right for them? What does it work for? What does it not work for? And why, what has to be true for it to be safe? Like that, uh, I, we actually commissioned a clinical summary of all the research that had been done on Ibogaine. And we give it away in context on our website for free because you don't have to do anything for it. You have to give your email. You can just download it. You can read it. Uh, because I thought no one should ever have to go to Google or whatever your preferred search engine is and okay. type in, does Ibogaine work for or what does it do? And then hope for the best. That, that just seems to me to be a total disservice to the self-motivation of someone who's interested in, in knowing more or knowing more for a loved one. I can empathize with that because I've been there and I've been there for other people, right? So the first phase zero um, is education, help decision-making support. Phase one is preparation. So this happens remotely. This happens for our guests. Uh, we call them guests, not clients or patients. Uh, it happens remotely using telemedicine. They meet for several one-hour sessions with a therapist or a therapeutic coach that is helping them understand 
why are they doing this? What is the potential? What should they do to prepare? What should they, uh, you know, uh, do with any anxiety or sense of uh, a desire to be ready or feel ready? How can they prepare? And so that happens before someone ever leaves their home. And it happens with a team member from here. Uh, and it's very structured, but it's really the goal is to start that engagement, that therapeutic engagement, uh, and really to set the the agenda, the table for, if you will, for the guests to say, this is work. You're about to do some real work and you deserve to do the work, but we can't do it for you. Uh, you have to do your own work. And we've, we've gone through it many times and many other people will help you but you got to do the work. So that happens before you leave home. Then they fly usually to Mexico and um, they're um, picked up at the airport uh, safely. They, there's no wandering around. They go directly from the, the, the gate to the car through immigration customs, obviously, taken directly to this facility, which is a class one medical facility. Um, and uh, they're greeted by every staff member. We do in introductions. There's a full um, medical assessment, of course, like any other facility in this domain. There's thorough search. You know, we just want to make sure everybody's safe. Um, and they begin that uh, that first uh, uh, phase, the second phase of pre-treatment, we call it. So. From the time they arrive to the time they actually have a psychedelic experience is usually about four days, four or five days. And they're in one-on-one -on -one therapy, they're in adjunct therapy, they might be doing um, other types of modalities, a lot of meditation, of course, a lot of writing, a lot of discovery work. And then the goal of this phase of pretreatment is what we call setting the personal psychedelic agenda. So this is not about, you hear sometimes people say, what are your intentions? This is a roadmap. We're trying to actually use one-on-one -on -one therapy, group therapy, writing. It could be, you know, um, fitness. We do high intensity uh, interval training, um, nutrition. All of this is really to help somebody feel safe medically, psychologically, emotionally, and spiritually safe so they can do the therapy and the work that's necessary to take full advantage of the third phase, which is the psychedelic experience, which what we call treatment. That experience takes about 12 hours. So it starts like clockwork at the same time in the morning in a, uh, a part of our facility that looks like an ICU, same technology as you would have in any um, you know urban environment in the United States, any hospital, uh, you know heart monitors, all the same training, all the same uh, technologies available to monitor uh, the uh, the client while they're going through this experience, so that we're aware of any potential risk that needs to be mitigated. Um, remember, the nurses are ICU certified, they're uh, um, ACLS certified. Like, this is a medical facility that's sort of masquerading as a retreat center that uses psychedelics. 
It looks better, in my opinion. You know, not a lot of ICUs have big murals and salt lamps and music playing and burn sage, but the same environment with the same talent and the same training as you would find any as you would want for a loved one if they went to the hospital. So the the treatment lasts about 12 hours. The first six hours of that is a very intense, very visually active psychedelic experience uh, where it's they say that certain psychedelics help people go uh, feel like they've gone out or wide or go, you know, they they go further. They say about ayahuasca and mushrooms and things like that or psilocybin that those plant medicines cause one to feel like they they discover more outside other dimensions and so on. Ibogaine, which, as you mentioned, comes from eboga, a root bark uh, from source from Gabon and central Western Africa, helps one go deeper. So it's not wider, it's deeper. And while you wear a beautiful set of noise canceling headphones, you're listening to beautiful music, you're wearing an eye mask, the sense is, the, the physiological sense is that you're going out into sort of uh, a vast expanse, but it's actually all about your memory and your life experience. And so whether it's good memories or challenging memories or traumatic events or <clears throat> experiences that are joyous and happy, um, everything that happens in an Ibogaine experience is somehow tied to you. So the analogy that we sometimes use is Ibogaine can be thought of as the intellectual's psychedelic because you're totally rational the whole time. Uh, mm -hmm. your, 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 your rational mind is very present. You know what's happening and you can uh, perceive and observe and be familiar with the expansion of consciousness and the, the depth of our memory of our, of our mind. Um, you're not unmoored from reality and it's not like train spotting where you're forced to watch the most horrible events of your life at all. It's, it, it can be challenging because People have had very painful experiences. What it does is allows us to observe those with not re-experiencing it or becoming attached to it, which shifts our perspective, usually shifts the perspective of what happened and how do I relate to it? Did it really, does it really mean what I thought it meant before I had this experience? Is there more to it? And then the second half of the Ibogaine experience is not visual at all. It's much more contemplative. So it's, it's an experience where people are deep in thought about what they observed and about the meaning of what they observed and how to relate to it. And that, that's like a 12-hour experience. While you're, to you're monitored by doctors, nurses, and therapists, in an environment where you feel totally safe and cared for and loved. The next day, so that's phase three, the next day is the beginning of acute aftercare where we're back in therapy, we're drawing uh, um, connections between the observations during the psychedelic experience with the goals of change and personal transformation. So how did what I saw 
about my relationships, about my childhood, about my dreams, about love, about self-esteem, about trauma, worthiness, self-love, a relationship with spirit or, or God, if you want to call it that, um, how do I use that? And we begin building a roadmap and, and a, a, a very actionable roadmap. We chose to design this from a arbitrary date of one year from the Ibogaine experience. Where will you be? Where do you need to be or want to be? And how do we get there? And all the action, all the insights that lead to actions and the actions that lead to sort of uh, behavioral change and, and relationship change. Sometimes it's living environment, whatever it might be, career change. We have plenty of people come and say, wow, I'm not so sure I want to be a criminal defense attorney anymore. You know, maybe, maybe there's more, you know, whatever it might be, the discovery of that new relationship with a deeper meaning for uh, of myself, my being, leads to a lot of actionable insights related to relationships, um, career, uh, goals of life, and so on. So we, the fourth thing is that acute aftercare is all about building that plan, that roadmap, that aftercare plan. And then the fifth phase after someone goes home or leaves, they're discharged, medically discharged, uh, what happens is they use that plan in the context of uh, therapy with our team. So they're on the phone back where they were in preparation, but they're on Zoom, they're, they might be going to meetings, they might be going to therapy, they might be um, seeing other types of professionals, but it's all about where are you on that plan and what are the benefits that you're seeing happen and how can we support that? So five phases. Yeah. Listening to particularly that third phase there, obviously the my clinical experience kind of makes it seem like there's a lot of similarities between what somebody's experiencing on Abigain as EMDR, somatic experiencing, but it feels like it's really compressed into just kind of one extended intervention. Um, it, 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 there's, okay, and there's part of me that's like that, that it, 12 hours is a long time to expose somebody to, to, to an experience like that. And I'm, curi I'm curious about that. The most powerful psychedelic plant medicine uh, one of the when we say psychedelic, one of the, the characteristics that makes it a psychedelic is a shift, a profound shift in sensory perception, right? So, so it, it feels sometimes feels like forty five minutes. So you know you're not anesthetized. You could easily take your eye mask off and know where you are. Now you're very off, very you know. Um, unstable. You're not going anywhere. Uh, but it doesn't feel like 12 hours. It really feels like time has, time's not an issue anymore. Um, uh, so yeah, if, if it was 12 hours and it felt like 12 hours, that would, for me, that would feel like 10 years and I wouldn't be anywhere near it. Uh, it yeah, it, it doesn't feel like that at all. But the point that you made about EMDR and somatic and other types of therapeutic modalities, which I respect, have benefited from, and and recommend, frankly. Um, uh, what we're noticing is the Ibogaine experience is very similar, but an accelerant. 
Um, and there's insight. So it's not that we don't that we think that somebody shouldn't do long-term therapy or use those technologies use those modalities it's that you shouldn't have to use them for so long to accomplish uh the a, a significant set of benefits you should use them and you might use them for a long time but we would hope that people uh, can eliminate withdrawals eliminate cravings have this deep and profound sense of purpose to their recovery quicker so that they can go further longer after they leave here. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. It's a, to me, plant-based medicines are fascinating tools that give individuals that accelerated moment in their journey. You know, when they're at Peaks Recovery Centers and going through, you know, our curriculum and our therapeutic interventions, it, it largely feels like they're leaving safe and satisfied and you guys care about me and there's a weight there. It's, it's when they walk out the door, how much further will that weight carry them so that they can make the next you know, stair step as you were doing in your own recovery journey, uh, Tom. And I think that's one of the most challenging aspects of interventions in the way that they've existed and why we believe plant-based medicines are such a potential for innovation within our industry, uh, because we want to see that weight continue. We want that curiosity. We want to turn over that next stone beyond the treatment walls. Okay, now I've done SE. I got to turn that over. I'm going to do EMDR. I'm going to turn that over. It's plant-based medicines. I'm going to turn that over. I'm going to keep pursuing this until I you know, discover that wellness aspect, not just stopping doing drugs, but discover wellness. And with that existential weight, I imagine you guys are seeing a lot of positivity in relationship to outcomes, the family experiences, the patient experiences. And what does that look like for you guys post-treatment, um, however you're following or tracking that? Uh, what are you guys experiencing about those outcomes in that, uh, that reflection period? Well, I really appreciate what you're saying because um, we call that, that sort of, uh, you know, that experience of unlocking each of those aspects that feeling of healing a feeling of a remember self-motivated desire mm -hmm. to actually feel that progress as quickly as possible ideally because there's more to it there's more momentum there's more motivation uh, there's more of a sense of rewards uh, and so people keep going and they're advocates for it right which remarkable talking about outcomes a lot of the people that come to peaks or they come to beyond they, you know if they didn't have to come if there was some other way to to you know change they probably would uh, be eager uh to experience that they come because nothing else worked uh or they're you know they're at a place where in their life where everyone's recommending it and now they finally agreed and um so what's interesting uh, in one of the outcomes that we see is people come here and they think they're a problem. Not they have a problem, they think they are a problem. And Shame. they've heard that for so long, they believe it. And it's not that the fentanyl or the oxys or the alcohol or the stimulus, those are the problem. It's a, I'm a problem. and. Um, and they leave here knowing they're not a problem. They leave here knowing that they're a solution, that they actually have impact, not only on themselves, because on Christmas this year, New Year's, 
as you probably did, we get a lot of letters, a lot of texts, a lot of, you know, uh, calls, people saying, you saved my life, you saved my life. And we remind them every time that they, they need to go say that and look in the mirror, that they saved their own life. Uh, we just created a place and a way for them to take advantage of their willingness to save their own lives. And they did the work. We just supported them and sort of created a, a, an environment for them to do that work. Um, they see themselves as a solution, not a problem. They see themselves as a hero, not a villain. When they go back into their, their family environment, because we know that most of the people that are suffering long-term from depression, anxiety, PTSD, or chemical dependency, they have a family dynamic that's also been suffering with them. And what I love most is people leave here with a plan and we share that plan with the family. One of the rituals, one of the therapeutic engagements is they present the plan to their family when they're here. And so, they're all worried about the same thing. My mom or my wife or my husband and sister, someone's going to ask me, what's your plan now that you're back, now that you're out of, of treatment, what's your plan? And we go, show them the plan, you know, and yeah. ask them, what is their plan? And actually help them develop their plan because they need a plan as much as you do for the recovery within that family dynamic and they become very motivated to share that plan it's not something they're ashamed of i we tell them hang it up on the refrigerator and leave room for everyone else's plan so the outcomes that that we see are you know a high double digit percentage of continuous recovery uh meaning our um, guests in follow-up calls. We do them nearly every day. Therapists do them uh, tonight. In fact, in 30 minutes, we have an alumni call with our previous guests. It's a Zoom, I should say. And it's just an alumni event where people can get together and share and talk about how is it going as they're working their aftercare plans together. Obviously, they talk about a lot of other stuff too, new babies, vacations, new jobs, some challenges, et cetera. High, high double digit percentage, about twice the you know, industry average is reported of a conventional uh, drug and alcohol rehabilitation facility. Um, but remember, we've only been operating for uh, a, a little less than a year technically. We opened last year, we, the company started last year, but we started taking people in the first quarter. Um, obviously, uh, some there, there, there has been low single digit um, uh, report of relapse. Uh, however, having been in recovery for a long time and been in program for a long time, what is remarkable is the relapses are fast, they're short, they're much shorter. And I think one of the reasons for that is people don't leave here thinking, oh no, I don't get to do drugs anymore. Oh no, I've got, you know, I don't get to drink anymore. I have to like hold on to that. They don't want to. And then some uh, very small number of them end up in some situation where they do. But it's not like they lose that resolve or awareness that that was their intention. 
and they made a mistake. They relapsed. They 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 need. They want to start uh, restart that uh, recovery practice faster than anything I've ever seen in uh, you know um, uh, you know AA or elsewhere. We know it happens. Uh, we're mm-hmm. in touch with people to be there if it happens. Um, but it doesn't last as long. It's not like we never hear from people again. Like that phenomenon, I think in part comes from, you know, a little bit more of an orientation towards harm reduction that we have than the binary. You either are clean or you're not clean, you know? Um, And I, in the end, I want, people to be healthy and live happy, healthy lives and be safe and, and grow and be, you know, satisfied. I think that one of the reasons that they raise their hand and they say, I had a slip faster, like immediately. And they, they, they want to know what can they do is because there's not a lot of underlying shame uh, or, or fear about telling the truth uh, in this type of practice, this type of environment, whereas mm-hmm. a lot of recovery environments, you know, um, it's like you either are or you're not in recovery. And I can identify with a lot of that. I spent years and years and years in that orientation. And I still believe that from obviously use of alcohol and illicit drugs and so on. But I think there's just a general um uh solidarity a strength of solidarity of saying hey you know we are going to do what it takes and if that means admitting that we made a mistake the goal doesn't change at all yeah <clears throat> and i can wholeheartedly appreciate that i mean just in my own journey and uh, i have the the unfortunate normie disposition in a substance use sort of, you know, chemical dependency culture, mental health, you know, um, and that's okay. I accept that about myself. But what I'm, what I'm trying to get at is that, you know, it, as, uh, yeah, uh, right now, right now running and marathons and those types of things like you're aware of, but, you know, but, but what, what I've noticed is that, um, you know, having a drink six years ago, you know, versus having a drink now, it changed for me. And I'm highlighting that because that's, to me, what the Ibogaine experience is around those swift relapses that you're talking about. Maybe there is something of curiosity of like, okay, I had this profound experience. I'm in this difficult moment. I can't remember my coping mechanisms and and I use. Well, ingesting a drug at that time after this profound awareness and awakening can completely shift the relationship between the user uh, and, and the chemical that's in front of them. And so that resonates with me uh, wholeheartedly. And it, it, again, I think speaks to that, that weight that you carry out and forward with uh, in that regard. And it's, and it's uh, empowering to hear that individuals are experiencing that as well, too, uh, in that regard. So uh, before I tie this up, as I always say in our Finding Peaks episodes, the, you know, the kids at home, you know, the social media is flipping through it. They only have so much capacity and attention to, <laughs> to, to hear these things out. But uh, for the kids at home, listen to all of it, because it's important. Uh, <laughs> In that regard, but um, how 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 can they find uh, you know beyond uh, what are the what are the future kind of build out and modeling look like for you guys? Uh, you know, help us help us bring that home. Yeah, I mean, we can't do this alone. I mean, you can find beyond at b e o n d dot 
uh, us, B-E-O-N-D.U-S. Um, on, same thing on Instagram and, and TikTok. Um, and, uh, but, you know, in November of 2021, I saw the same news articles about the CDC study you saw, 100,000 overdose deaths in one year. And that's when I knew, like, I wasn't going to be able to sleep well at night if I didn't do something that would radically change the outcomes of the effort to help people. Um, and it's getting worse, right? So there's no way we can do this alone, but we hope that someday there will be medically safe, ethical, scientifically based uh, Ibogaine uh, and other psychedelic assisted uh, therapies and treatments for addiction, PTSD, um, depression, anxiety at scale. Like it, it, that's what the world seems to need. Um, and so we think that we encourage more people to uh, do this, do this right, do this in, in the way that we think is the best way possible. But for people that are in need, of course, if they're medically qualified and um, we can help them, we would love to at Beyond. Absolutely beautiful. And, uh, and wholeheartedly here at you know, Peaks Recovery Center, just appreciate uh, the courage to build a business model around this uh, and to um, you know, be a leader uh, on this side of the industry and the innovative aspects of things. And you know, for all the viewers out there, I've had you know, several opportunities to connect with Tom and his uh, team out there, and it is a wholehearted, caring team. Uh, it's not just a place to go and to use plant-based medicines for the sake of it. As he stated in the beginning of this episode, there is a real fundamental principle taking place here and a real opportunity for individuals to get well. And so seek them out, um, you know, be courageous in the self, reach out to them, see what's going on. Check out the data that they're freely giving you. You don't have to give away your email. You don't have to talk to anybody to do it. Uh, all of this is true of that website. And I think, again, it just speaks to uh, where their hearts are at in this process and appreciate all the viewers out there. And Tom, thank you so much for being on this episode with us today. It is uh, such a pleasure to meet you. It's a, it's yeah. a joy. It's a joy to be here. Thank you very much. Yeah, means a means a lot to share this aspect of this industry and this movement that's taking place and uh, the leaders that are on the forefront of it. So I appreciate your services. And with that, folks, just like uh, Tom and beyond on the Instagram, TikToks, all those types of things, you can find Finding Peaks, Peaks Recovery Centers, all of those things on uh, on our social medias. Check them out. Finding Peaks at PeaksRecovery.com. It might be Finding Peaks at FindingPeaks.com. Now I. I should have checked into that before I got onto this, but either way, you can find us out there. Again, we're going to keep bringing you the good stuff uh, throughout the year. And as uh, Colorado moves in this similar direction uh, that Tom's uh, a part of currently, uh, as we move into this in 2025, um, you know, we're going to continue to bring and showcase uh, this very real possible solution and, and intervention that exists out there for everybody. So uh, Brandon Burns, Chief Executive Officer, Chief Clinical Officer Jason Friesma, signing off on the first episode of Finding Peaks in 2023. Thank you so much for joining us and we'll see you next time.